I'm a national security person. Let's focus on real threats, not manufactured. Books are scary. Don't let books be in our library threats. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's pod is part of a series called Road to 24, which, as we lead up to the 2024 elections, will deal with the issues, organizations, candidates working to save our country's democracy and create a government that works for all of us. With that in mind, today's guest is Michigan Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who is running to replace longtime Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow. A third-generation Michigander, Alyssa's great-grandfather came to the United States through Ellis Island, founding a family meat business that would go on to create a number of the food staples that people of Michigan love, like their famous Ballpark Frank. Alyssa spent her early life on a family farm. Then, while at graduate school in New York, her life was changed by 9-11, and she was called to national security. After being recruited by the CIA, Alyssa served three tours in Iraq alongside the U.S. military, then in the White House State Department under President Bush and President Obama, and finally at the Pentagon. She currently represents Michigan's 7th District in Congress, first elected in 2018 in a Republican plus four seat, then re-elected in 2020 as one of only seven House Democrats to represent a seat Trump also won, and then clearly did her job as she was re-elected in 2022 by nearly six points really turning her district around. So Alyssa has represented her country and her district, and now she wants to represent her state in the Senate. I'm having her on today first so you can get to know her and hopefully be inspired to help her campaign, but also to give you a sense of how difficult the Senate map is for Democrats in the next election and why everything we do right now counts. We can't afford to lose a single seat in the Senate, or we risk returning control to the Republicans who have already shown us they have no interest in governing. But the 2024 Senate map is rough, and the Republicans only need to win two seats to change the balance of power, and the Democrats will be defending eight. So we have to buckle down and work harder. I want you to know that Alyssa is one of those people who is ready and willing to do that. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Congresswoman for Michigan's 7th District and Democratic candidate for Senate, Alyssa Slotkin. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. As a big supporter of democracy, I'm a huge fan of Michigan politics. You guys are really showing us how it's done up there. Yeah. I think Michigan is a good way to feel optimistic about politics because six years ago today, we were, you know, had just voted for Trump. We had a Republican governor, attorney general, secretary of state, House, Senate, congressional delegation. And uh, I always say a Democrat with passion is great. A Democrat with a plan is much more powerful. And in Michigan, you have to have a plan. So we did, we do, and uh, we feel pretty pretty good right now. You should. And you've also, uh, we did an entire episode just on Michigan being the anti-Florida. And it was like, you are listening to the people. It's all ground up there. It's what do the people want? What are they asking for? How can we make it easier on them? How can we make democracy work better for them? And you're doing it from the ground all the way up. And I just, I love it what you guys are doing there. Now, you, of course, are running for Senate. And of course, we're going to have to talk about that. But you are also still a congresswoman, which means that you have had a front row seat for this recent near government shutdown where the Republican Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, had to rely on Democrats to get enough votes to keep the government running. And then he lost his job as Speaker when his own party called for him to vacate the chair. So what is your take on what's gone down and what's happening next? 
Yeah. I mean, honestly, this to me um, felt like something we knew was going to happen back when we were trying to get a Speaker of the House in January, right? When we all sat there on the floor of the House and it took, you know, 11 or 15 rounds, whatever it took for 15. Kevin McCarthy. 15, sorry. <laughs> 15 to get the, the Kevin McCarthy as Speaker. You know, he, he handed um, the shovel to the Freedom Caucus and um, dug his own grave. And that's that's what we saw come to roost this past week. And I think that the Republicans are having this internal fight, which I actually I'm, I'm glad they're having it. Right. I'm glad that they're having this extremist versus kind of more normal. I'm glad they're they're pushing and pulling on each other. But it 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 unfortunately means um, to the rest of the country it, that it feels destabilizing, right? That we don't have a Speaker of the House. The government is going to run out of money on November 17th. So I'm really committed to making sure as soon as possible we get a new Speaker. And I, frankly, I, I think that we should all be invested in having that happen. How that's going to happen, honestly, it's as good as, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, it is it is really going to be a messy, I think, week or two here. And I think people need to understand that there's a lot of people out here saying that it's the Democrats who voted against Kevin McCarthy. It's the Democrats that removed Kevin McCarthy as speaker. And it is true that the Democrats did not vote for Kevin McCarthy to remain as speaker, but the rule to call a vote to vacate the chair with only, by only one person was proposed by Republicans, agreed to by McCarthy, and then the Republicans called for a vote. The Democrats had nothing to do with that part. And we have to remember that the Democrats have no power over these decisions. Yes, they could have saved him when the vote was called. But the question would be, why would you guys do that? Because the minority party is under no obligation to vote for someone other than their own leader to be speaker. Ultimately, who runs the House is not the minority party's choice, and they aren't responsible for who the majority party chooses to lead them. But it seems to me when Matt Gates called for a vote to vacate the chair. You guys simply did exactly what you did 15 times when Kevin's name came up as speaker before, and you voted that he wasn't right for the job. You guys didn't think so nine months ago, and you don't think so now. And I think that that is very reliable in many ways. Yeah. I think it's even more than that, though, because if if Kevin McCarthy knew that he was going to be at risk of losing his job, he had every opportunity to come to Democrats and say, here's my deal. He sure did. Here's a power sharing conversation. Here's how I'm going to reform the House so we have less of these culture war bills and more practical, reasonable bills. And and to be honest, I would have been open to it. Look, my my yeah. price would have been high, um, but I would have been open to it. And But he didn't. And he said that in the press conference right after he lost his job. He said, I did not want to, quote, sell my soul to Democrats for their votes. So none of us were approached either as a group or individually. You know, I guess my question would be, which of those Republicans would have voted for Nancy Pelosi without a deal? None of them, right? Um, and especially for, for Kevin McCarthy, who has lied to us, who has changed his position a million times. And for, for me, the one that really made it difficult for me to trust him was the January 6th conversation. He, right after an armed insurrection where we barricaded ourselves in our offices, he came out and said, this is unacceptable. We need an inquiry. And then two weeks later reversed himself. So I'm not going to vote for someone like that unless they're giving me something that really is going to help my constituents. That's really going to move legislation forward. And he said very openly, I did not want to deal with Democrats. So here we are. 
Yeah, here we are. I mean, I think that that's exactly the point. People need to understand that. Like, Kevin probably could have got enough Democrats on board to allow him to keep his job if he had compromised or offered something that the Democrats might have wanted. Funding for Ukraine, power sharing on committees, a clean budget to fund the government longer than 45 days. Any sort of reasonable negotiating offer probably would have gone a long way with a lot of people. And the Democrats had just voted to save his hide by voting to pass his bill to keep the government open. And Kevin thanked you guys by going on TV and blaming you for wanting to shut the government down when it was his own party that voted to do that. So he took credit for keeping the government open when it was Democrats who gave him the votes. And then he turned around and was like, why won't these people vote for me to stay in power? None of that makes any sense. But I think We are going to have to sort of watch what happens with this because obviously who's in line right now, who they're choosing to be the speaker and the names that are being floated are truly terrible. You know, Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise, Elise Stefanik. These are, in my opinion, bottom of the barrel people. And I think if our expectations were that the Republican majority couldn't do the job, then I think they are, as Elise Stefanik said on the floor, exceeding our expectations. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But I think we need to remember that part of this job of being in Congress is to govern. And the Republicans keep showing us over and over again that they don't actually want to do the job part. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think the thing that's important, too, is that they have a very slim majority but it was exactly the same as the majority that we had last Congress as Democrats. And Lord knows that is hard to manage, right? But on a number of our big pieces of bipartisan legislation, I'll be frank, we had some members from the left of the Democratic Party who didn't want to vote on some of this legislation. So a lot of our big legislation, we needed a handful at least of Republicans to come with us. And that's how we passed the CHIPS Act you know, for microchips. That's how we packed the passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Like that's the process I think they're going to have to go through is that sometimes if you want to actually move things forward, you are going to have to work across the aisle. And as you say, Nancy Pelosi had exactly the same five seat majority when she was in power and she had to make deals with people. But her ability to make deals and keep her own party in line and keep everyone together is how we got stuff like the American Rescue Plan and the Infrastructure Act and the PACT Act and the CHIPS Act and the Respect for Marriage Act and the Gun Safety Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, like you can't say you can't get stuff done because we just watched you get things done with the same majority, just with the other party in charge. So I think we're just going to have to see because right now it's clearly a mess. And I think we just need to remember who's willing to make deals, run the government, do the job, and who is not. Now, one of the things that came up during this government funding fight that you had was the money going to Ukraine for their war efforts uh, against Russia. And that was left out. And so at this recording, we haven't yet solidified funding to continue to support this incredibly consequential war. You worked with the Pentagon. You worked at the Pentagon on U.S. response to Russian aggression, I believe. So you obviously understand the importance of a Ukrainian victory here. So before we move on to the race for the Senate, what can you tell us about getting that money to the people who need it and how that plays into American defense? Because I don't think everybody understands how essential it is to America's best interest that Russia loses this war. Yeah, uh, you know, I think, um, and I will just say, I think that Ukraine funding is more at risk than it was a week ago because it's going to become a key factor in the speaker fight. Right. They're all like jumping on top of each other to show how they won't vote for Ukrainian funding. By the way, Ronald Reagan is just rolling over in his grave. Right. That his party is sort of running on a campaign of no more money 
to defend a democracy from the former Soviet Union, right? Um, I think what I would say in terms of explaining it in, in terms that are not, you know, wonky is that, like, do we believe it's a benefit for our safety, for our kids, for the whole free world that autocratic states can't just take over democracies? Like, We've lived in the post-World War II world where I've grown up, you've grown up, all the listeners have grown up, where we're not worried about a nation invading the United States or going to war in a big way in Europe. We have gotten used to peace and security as if it just happens by accident. It does not, right? It does not. And certainly the history of humanity is war, not peace. So when an autocratic country tries to take over an entire democracy, we have to take a stand or else they'll just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. So while I acknowledge the amount of money and weapons that are going to Ukraine is high, it is a fraction of what we would pay if we did nothing and we just let them roll over first Ukraine, then Belarus, then maybe one of the NATO states. Suddenly we're being asked to have American sons and daughters come and fight in Europe. Can you imagine? So while I acknowledge the high price in dollars that we are paying, I believe that we either pay now or pay a lot more later with managing global peace and securities. And also with Putin, it's like if if you don't push back, it's like it's like a toddler. Like if you let him get away with this, he's not going to stop. It's just incentivizing him to do more. So um, I think we have to be very clear, and I think he's having a field day with the fact that Ukraine funding is the hot potato in American politics right now. With that in mind, what's your thought on congressional members who really seem to be making decisions in Russia's best interest instead of Americans? I think it's a combination of people who like believe the echo chamber and that like the Trump-inspired love of Putin and respect for Putin that sort of it's like anti-establishment, like, no, we've all been taught to hate Russia, but Russia's good and Putin's leading in a real way. Like there's part, part of it is that part of it is, you know, that people are the economic argument. They don't want to be spending money. They are isolationists, right? They don't want a strong American role in the world. And by the way, I feel that uh, from the left and the right, right? I get heckled now in parades in Michigan from both the left and the right to get out of Ukraine, no more money to Ukraine. So there's a strong isolationist feeling in many people in the country. And then I think, um, you know, then I can't explain it. I honestly don't understand how anyone who was raised in, again, post-World War II America, post-Cold War America, can sit there and like wax poetically about Vladimir Putin. Like that guy is a dangerous dude and not good for American interests. So it is confusing for me as a national security person by training to hear my peers almost glorifying Putin in the House of Representatives. It's insane. Yeah, it is. It, it does feel insane to me too. And I, the president called on the majority of the House Republicans to keep their word and secure this passage and support the needed help to Ukraine as it defends itself, right? We are an indispensable nation when it comes to this kind of thing. And if America doesn't stand up for democracy around the world, then you know who really are we? And I think you just had vote vets in D.C. calling out the Republicans for sidelining Ukraine when they need us most because we need to be committed to democracy and freedom. And if we aren't there, we're just going to have it like you said, steamrolled everywhere. Um, so we need to be really careful about that because I do think that Ukrainian victory is the only way to a secure and safe world. 
And look, we know that this can't go on forever. Zelensky knows mm. this can't go on forever. But you want to put him in as strong a position as he can be so that when he decides to go to negotiations, he's in a position of strength. That's what we're trying to do. We're not trying to do this for 10 years. We're trying to set him up in a strong position to get back the rest of his occupied country. Yeah. And maybe the children. <laughs> um, now, you are running for Senate. And I was explaining in the introduction how essential it is to not only win your seat, but to keep the Senate in Democratic hands, because that is key to our government running functionally. Democrats right now have an incredibly slim margin in the Senate. We had a 50-50 split. Now it's 51-49, but a couple of those votes are definitely not guaranteed. And in 2024, Democrats are going to be defending 23 seats, while the Republicans only have to defend 11. But it's also an incredibly hard map. The Republicans only need to win two seats to flip control of the Senate, and there are eight Democratic seats that are considered vulnerable. And and those seats include the three states that Donald Trump carried in 2020, Montana, Ohio, and West Virginia, the four states that Biden carried narrowly, Michigan, that's you, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and then Virginia, which Biden did win comfortably, but now that's considered in play because Republican Glenn Youngkin is now the governor. And in contrast, there's no Republican senators up for re-election in states that Biden won. So what is your take on the Senate map? What's what's your take on where we're headed here? So, I mean, you basically outlined it, right? We are playing defense, particularly in these states right. that Trump won. I mean, there's no, that is the most important place, you know, um, for us, I think, to think about for the Senate. But I also feel like in American politics, it, the world is changing every 18 months. What worked in the last election doesn't work in this election. The mood in the country 18 months ago is going to be different from the mood of the country a year from now when we're voting. So I don't I don't I don't think we can sort of like say common wisdom says we're in trouble or common wisdom says because I think we're like a giant mixing bowl in our political system. And we just you, you have to have your ear to the ground. I know that in Michigan, like you said, we're very proud of what we've done. But now people outside of Michigan are like, oh, you guys are a blue state. And everyone inside of Michigan is like, no, we are a swing <laughs> state. We swing. That means when we have one party control, people like to swing to the other side. So I, you know, all I can say is we shouldn't take what happened in the last election as a good indicator of future elections. Um, our, we are going through what I believe to be a decade of political instability in the United States of America. I, I, I used to study other countries for a living. They would have these 10 or 12 years where they were so polarized internally, so turned against each other. You couldn't, they wouldn't pass a law here that you couldn't sign a treaty with them because they just revoke it the next week. We are in one of those decades of political instability. We will get through it, but we are in it. And in that, I just don't think anyone is a great prognosticator of what's going to happen, you know, 14 months from now, but we got to play defense and we got to work. We actually have to have a plan. I, I hate to say this, but it is not enough to be outraged on Twitter. You have to know what your 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 team in your state is working on, and you have to get up and help them do that. That's what we did in Michigan, and that's what I advocate. You know, now in Ohio, they're going to have really important ballot initiatives. Like we need to help our friends and not forget our friends in the middle of the country. Please, please. 
Oh, no, absolutely. But I also think you're exactly right. Like I say all the time, people keep saying that the deck is stacked against Senate Democrats in 24. But I believe that there's such a difference between the two parties right now. It, it's never been more stark. And, and I think that changes the game, right? The next big election is not about voting for a marginal tax rate that you prefer, or conservative versus liberal values, whatever you think those might be. It's a decision between whether the government should be democratic or not, whether you believe the president should have unilateral control over the country, or if that person should be working with Congress and answerable to the people. We're deciding between a country of violence where we do things like shoot shoplifters in the street or ban guns to protect people on the streets. And of course, the 2024 election is also the choice between a country where we have the freedom to make decisions over what we do with our own bodies or a country where the government gets to make our most private decisions for us. So this isn't a normal election. So I don't think we should be looking, as you said, at these maps, like the whole thing is going to play out as it normally does, right? That at the end of the day, some of these states that are considered absolutely like flippable states, states like Wisconsin and Ohio, we're already seeing changes there. Like with the Wisconsin Supreme Court seat, the Democrats came out in force to make sure that Janet Protosay was won. And they're coming out in force again to make sure that they don't impeach her. In Ohio, they came out in force to say, do not take our vote. Um, and give us some sort of supermajority. We can't even choose what we want for our own people. These are people that are making decisions in off election years, in the summer, you know, in special elections. And so I don't think we can look at any of this like it's a guarantee. And it comes back to what you said. We have to work. Yeah. We have to work to get the yeah. result that we want. But I will say, I mean, my guess is your listeners are hyper engaged, hyper activated, hyper informed. Right. And I just want to put out there that, um, you know, in a state like Michigan, there's a lot of people who really they can't stand politics. They turn the TV off when the news comes on. They just want to, like, go to their job, do well, have their kids do better. They they sort of say sort of a pox on both their houses. And I do have to say that inflation is a very real thing. And people feel extremely stressed about the amount of money that they have in their pockets. And there are a lot of people in the state of Michigan and across the Midwest that are pocketbook voters. And so I'm not dismissing what you're saying. I'm saying, if anything, it's almost like there are two worlds of voters, the ones who are like eating and breathing politics and like consuming it. And then those who are just like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. Um, They have very little time to listen, but they know how much money in their pockets and how much they can buy with it. And that's that's leading their stress. So um, I would just put that out there that not everyone is as amazingly informed as your listeners. Oh, yeah. What do you think we do, though, about pocketbook issues like you're saying? Because I've always said that, you know, the right to have an abortion is a pocketbook issue. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the amount of people at your kitchen table is a kitchen table issue. If you are forced to have a baby and leave your job, or if you can't afford to have the baby that you're being forced to have, that is an economic issue. So I always feel like those two things are often uh, separated and yet they are so enmeshed. So how do you think we reach out to people that are, say, turn off the TV political voters, but you want to reach them? Because a lot of the inflation issues... America's doing great compared to the rest of the world, quite frankly. And a lot of it is corporate greed versus uh, governmental problems. What would you tell people like that who are really just leading from their pocketbook? Today's podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
As I've said before, I'm so pleased to be partnering with BetterHelp because I really believe that our mental health is absolutely essential to our well-being. Do you ever find that when you're trying to fall asleep, your brain suddenly won't stop talking to you? That your thoughts race before bed or at other inopportune moments? Well, one of the ways we stop all those thoughts from rambling around in our head is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do that, a place to disrupt your negative thought cycles or worry and find some mental peace. I write things down so I can talk to my therapist about them. It allows me to get things out of my head and work through it later. There's a lot to think about in our lives. You don't have to have experienced a major trauma to benefit from therapy. Just living in this world, trying to get by, takes a major toll. Why not lighten the load with someone who can help you cope and set boundaries or just figure out why you keep doing the same thing over and over? Ultimately, we all want to be the best versions of ourselves and therapy helps us get there. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. You don't have to go anywhere. It's completely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists for any reason for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, spelled H-E-L-P dot com slash politicsgirl. Okay, when I'm working, which is all the time, it's difficult to keep up my healthy eating. I have a coffee and then I often forget lunch, which leads me to panic eat cereal or snacks around four. This is not ideal and it is certainly not feeding my brain, which is why I love mosh bars. Now I've been really clear that I'm not a protein bar person. It's always been a texture thing for me. So in the past, they haven't been an option. I recognize that they're good for people like me who are on the go, but I don't like them, so I don't eat them. And then I tried mosh. Mosh is a protein bar made for your brain. It supports brain health with ingredients like lion's mane, collagen, and omega-3s, but it also has 12 grams of protein, only 160 calories, and one gram of sugar. So if you're busy, but your body needs fuel, nourish your body and mind with a guilt-free snack of a Mosh protein bar. Mosh even has a new line of plant-powered protein bars in three delicious flavors for those of you who want all the protein and brain support of the original bars, but with plant-based ingredients. Mosh bars were founded by Patrick Schwarzenegger and his mother, Maria Shriver, who are on a mission to make a difference and are donating a portion of all proceeds from Mosh bars to support brain research at the Women's Alzheimer's Movement at the Cleveland Clinic. Mosh protein bars were formulated by some of the top neuroscientists and functional nutritionists to help benefit the research of some of those same people. This is good people making good things for good reasons. So head to moshlife.com slash politicsgirl to save 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack. That's 20% off plus free shipping on your first six count trial pack, which includes all of their delicious flavors. And my personal favorite is lemon white chocolate. That's M-O-S-H-L-I-F-E dot com slash politicsgirl. Mosh protein bars will keep your brain and your body fit, fueled, and feeling good. What would you tell people like that who are really just leading from their pocketbook? Well, the first thing I would say is anyone who wants to have that conversation needs to lead with an economic message, right? We need to talk okay. about the future of work, right? What are we, and I'm from a manufacturing state. So making yeah. sure we're doing as much as we can policy-wise on job creation, business, entrepreneurialism, jobs with dignity. I mean, that's what this whole UAW strike is about, right? Is like, right. Are, right. are we going to believe in a strong middle class in America? Like, is that still a thing that we aspire to? Can you get in and stay in the middle class when you work 40 hours a week and stay out of trouble? So I think we're seeing that conversation play out literally in the strike. 
Um, and then how do we deal with the insane costs of healthcare, prescription drugs, childcare, post-secondary education? That to me, that middle class, that shrinking middle class is the greatest threat to the United States. And I say that as a national security person. And so I speak, that's like number one reason I'm running for Senate, because to me, that is the threat. So we shouldn't shy away from an economic message as Democrats. All the other democratic values things are absolutely vital, but so is people being able to feed and house their kids. And that's, yeah. um, that to me, it's, a, it's, it's both, not either or. Sure. I mean, one of the things that really resonates with me with your story is the experience that you share about your mom who was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And at the time she didn't have health insurance. And you explain that she'd let it lapse because of a pre-existing condition, a previous cancer. And it just made it too expensive for her to hold on to it. And so while you were trying to figure out what was best to do for her health, you were also declaring bankruptcy for her as well. And as someone uh, with a major pre-existing condition myself, someone whose life was saved by the pre-existing clause in the Affordable Care Act. So it made it illegal to deny people like me health yeah. insurance. Um, and as someone who spends tens of thousands of dollars a year on insurance and premiums and medications just to keep myself alive, I feel this issue so deeply in my bones. There there has to be a better way to do this, the, even just the health insurance in this country, don't you think? Oh, I mean, literally, I, I think I told you at the beginning of the show that I had a flat tire today. So I went to go yeah. um, at a bent rim. So <laughs> I went to the mechanic. And I'm waiting. And of course, I'm making calls and I'm doing work while I'm waiting to get my rim fixed. And a guy came up to me and it is I could have predicted what he was going to engage me on. He worked at the, the you know, bell tire. And he's like, I just got to tell you, like, I just it is so hard to afford my medication. I, I don't know. Is there anything you can do? Like, I, it, I don't know what to tell my wife. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of times people come up to me, clutch my arm and say, I can't afford my insulin or I can't afford my, my, you know, whatever that is, I would say our healthcare system, including the cost of prescription drugs is broken. It is broken. And you can argue as we should about what a better system looks like, but we can't shy away from the fact that people are paying way too much of their annual income to healthcare and prescription drugs. We've tried to do something about that the Democrats in the House and the Senate have tried. We lowered the cross of insulin. We're, we're doing as much as we can, but the system is creating perverse incentives to charge people desperate amounts of money for life-saving drugs. And it's just, it is, it is untenable for most of Americans. Yeah, it is untenable, but it also traps us. If we're talking about freedom, it also traps us in jobs we don't like because that's yep. where our insurance comes from. It traps us in marriages we don't like because our insurance comes through our spouse. If yep. we have a sick child, it ends up trapping us in that that cycle. And uh, and so I do think it's a freedom issue as well, the healthcare yep. issue. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And then uh, certainly I, the number of people I know who said, well, I really want to start a business, but I can't risk going exactly. without my health insurance. So I stay in my, you know, like you said, dead end, boring, whatever job, um, because I need that insurance. Like there, to me, as an American, sort of the American spirit would say that we have to be able to cover people when they are trying something new, trying to build something, trying to strike out on their own. And it, it, again, there are many ways to do this, but you got to acknowledge the problem in order to get to a solution. 
Absolutely. I mean, as someone who grew up in Canada, you know, that was not something I thought about, right? It was just something that the government covered. And uh, there's no point when, you you know, I was in a car accident at 16 and we weren't like, geez, should we call an ambulance or can we afford that? Like you just, you do the things to take care of yourself. And that's not to say that the Canadian system is perfect, but there definitely is a way to come together and find a better solution once you understand and you acknowledge that there is a problem and the problem needs to be fixed. I know you're on a listening tour across Michigan to hear what people have to say and to hear from what they want to see from their senator. Are you finding that those are the kind of issues that are top of mind for people? For sure. They're, they're, um, what's the future of work? You know, I'm in yeah. manufacturing now, but does my child have a, a path in manufacturing that's a middle-class path? And then it's how do I afford the insane cost that I need to live, right? Basic things. Um, so it's all part of that like kitchen table economics. Um, there's right. definitely, uh, for sure, um, making more things in America. And we're in Michigan here, so we always want to make more things here, especially critical items. And then protecting our kids from the things that are truly harming them. And I say truly because I mean truly. What is truly harming our kids Number one killer of children under 21 in America is gun violence, right? In our communities, in our schools, by suicide and by accident. And I say this as someone who grew up with guns, who, thank God, carried a Glock and an M4 in three tours in Iraq. I I was happy to have those weapons on me. But it is insane to me as the first congresswoman in America to represent two school shootings, Oxford High School and Michigan State University, like... I am just over it. You you can be a responsible gun owner and care about gun safety. I see it every single day. And we passed our first real laws in Michigan in 40 years after the Michigan State shooting. So I've seen it happen. That is harming our kids. And the diseases of despair are harming our kids. Mental health issues, opioid addiction, fentanyl, and then climate change, which will affect our kids way more than us, right? And in Michigan, the most bipartisan thing in the world is preserving our natural heritage, our lakes, our rivers, our watersheds, like our environment, extreme weather, right? These are very important issues in Michigan. What is not truly harming our children are books and teaching <laughs> Black history in our schools and being an inclusive society. And I'm, I'm a national security person. Let's focus on real threats, not manufactured, you know, books are scary. Don't let books be in our library threats. Yeah. And also you were in the CIA, right? So I imagine you have some feelings about, well, particularly Trump's push to undervalue and undermine those federal agencies like the CIA and the FBI. And this talk to consolidate federal agencies under presidential power. What are your thoughts on the importance, not only of those agencies themselves, but of their independence moving forward? I mean, the in particular, as a CIA officer, the attack on the FBI, who I worked alongside my entire career, and while no one would ever say that any federal agency is perfect, the attack on law enforcement, you know, right now I'm running against someone who's a former FBI officer who has turned against the FBI and called them corrupt and misguided. And it's, it's just hard to watch. And I, I think that um, once you erode um, faith in our institutions, it gets a lot harder for people to do basic things like follow laws. Um, yeah. And that's a real danger, right? Lawless society is a dangerous society. And, you know, that's why it, we, we have to push back on this attack on the Department of Justice, on the FBI. I mean, you know, yes, we're all watching pre- former President Trump go through his legal battles. 
but they just also indicted a sitting Democratic senator, right? And they will be able to sit in front of a jury of their own peers and plead their case. But that is our system. And without the rule of law, we are in real trouble. Yeah, we are in real trouble. We say this all the time on the show that like this idea of fighting fire with fire and if they're cheating, we should cheat. And it's like, no, if we want to live in a a rule of law, we have to abide by the rule of law. Even if that goes slower than what we would want, we must do it because if both sides abandon the rule of law, then there is no rule of law. So we need to do it. At the end of the day, independent analysis, which of course you and I have said we have like less faith in, has the Senate flipping to Republicans and the House flipping to Democrats. Now, the House makes sense to me because you work there. We can all see it's incredibly dysfunctional and it should probably not be too, too hard, hopefully, for the Democrats to flip it back to their own power. But we've been here before with the Republicans in charge of the Senate, making sure that every single piece of legislation the Democratic House passes dies before it gets to the Senate floor. And we obviously can't allow that to happen again. So what would be your sort of final thoughts on what we should all be doing to get the House back, but also to retain Democratic control of the presidency and state? I think it goes back to what you were saying before, right? Have a plan. Outrage isn't enough and we have to work. Yeah, I think um, in terms of flipping the House, our friends in California and New York need to have a real plan. We lost the majority out of those two states. Frankly, five seats in New York alone was devastating. And we are poised to flip the House, but we need those states to have a real concrete plan in those specific districts, right? Because all politics is local. So that's number one. And if you live in those states, like ask the question, prompt, agitate, get the plan, et cetera. Um, number two, the, the truth is that voter turnout is critical in national races, like the presidential, but also big Senate races. And we always say this as Democrats, right? If people who didn't vote actually either were motivated to vote or were able to vote easily, we would win many, many more elections. So what can you do in your community to increase voter turnout, either by registering people, right? The like Stacey Abrams model of like, teach a man to fish, register people, let them vote in many, many elections instead of just focusing on one cycle, right? Yes. Um, Or like when it comes down to making sure the people who are registered go and vote, what kind of what organizations can you hook up with that are focused on that turnout? And um, those to me feel like essential things in these elections, certainly in the presidential, but also in those big state elections. Yeah. And we do talk to a lot of those people on this show, everyone from Field Team 6 to States Project to NARAL to Emily's List, you know, people that are getting out the vote, that are out there really making a difference, swing left. And I think, you know, knowing that to retain control of the Senate, the Republicans only need the two seats, but it only drops down to one seat if the GOP presidential nominee wins, because, of course, the GOP presidential nominee would have a VP being the tiebreaker in the Senate, just like VP Harris is right now. But I think we want to be really clear to the audience and and let them be really clear to the people that they know that if the GOP presidential nominee wins, whoever that might be right now, it's really looking like it's going to be Trump. I'm not entirely sure how much Congress will actually matter because Trump has been very clear that he's going to gut American democratic institutions and replace people with anyone who isn't completely loyal to him. He's told us he plans to solidify the power of the entire federal government around the presidency. He's talked about encouraging violence against those he doesn't like, locking up anyone he sees as a political enemy. He's literally promising to do everything that he's currently accusing the Democrats of doing. But 
while actively kind of admitting that you can't actually do that in America within the confines of our current government. So he's going to have to change the laws in order to do that. Um, so I want people to understand that Donald Trump being reelected or a Republican of that vein being reelected is essentially the end of the democracy as we know it. So one seat, two seats, 10 seats in the Senate won't really matter as much if Donald Trump isn't soundly defeated because we'll have allowed a dictator to take control of the richest, most powerful nation in the world. And that is something we can't allow to happen. So what can we do with you? What can we do to help you win your seat? How can people who are listening help you be the next senator from Michigan and help retain democracy in the Senate? Well, certainly for the Michiganders out there, come and volunteer, go to our website, come and sign up and volunteer. We've got a lot going on and it'll only increase between now and um, and the the obviously the election. Um, you can volunteer, you know, from further away and help us with texting yes. and postcard writing and all those kinds of things. Um, post something, post this podcast, post, you know, so that no more people get to know us and then support voter registration and voter turnout organizations. That to me, those to me are the concrete things. And then I just have to say, um, I don't know if you've done an episode on this, please don't vote for a third party. I, we I'm just, just did one. Okay, good. I, <laughs> it's just an just, absolute spoiler. Math. It's math. Okay. And I think people forget that if Jill Stein had not been on the ballot, in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, just three states, then Hillary Clinton would have won the 2016 election. And I know um, for some people, it's really enticing and interesting. RFK is about to do a big rally in Michigan. I mean, it's like, I know there's lots of, on, on sort of multiple ends of the spectrum, there's third parties. I am deeply worried about third parties um, being spoilers and um, I like math and look at what third party participation has done in the last 20 years, um, particularly for the Democratic nominee. Just look it up. It ain't good. Yeah. And I, I say to people all the time, it's not that the third party itself, it's not that we're just telling you, you have to vote right. between a Democrat and a Republican. No. It's that you have to choose between those two for the presidential election. There is no third party that will ever get that presidential nod. That is not going to happen. It is like you said, it is strictly math. If you love Green Party policies, then vote for Green Party candidates at your local level, for mayor, for Senate, for Congress, and put more Green Party people in there to start pushing uh, the direction that you want to go. Years ago, we wouldn't be even talking about making sure congressional people couldn't trade stocks. That is something that has come up through the system as a groundswell. And that is how you make change at that level. But you don't just put a Green Party or a Libertarian or a No Labels or an RFK, whatever he ends up running as, and they're the president and everything changes. That's not how the system works. And a third party cannot mathematically win the job. So all you're doing is voting for the party that you are most closely aligned with not to win. That is what ends up happening. So we need to be really careful. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to third party equals Trump and, and understand conceptually why that is. That doesn't mean to say you can't have your own feelings and your own uh, way you wish the country could go. It just isn't going to happen at a presidential level. And so if we want to follow you, what is your website that we can follow it's you on? It's Um And uh, uh, for those out there who often confuse me on Twitter, I am not Elise Stefanik. I'm Alyssa Slotkin, E-L-I-S-S-A. <laughs> Every day we have to say, hi, this is Alyssa Slotkin, not Elise Stefanik. So, um, and I would love it if people wanted to come there and um, just thanks for the time and thanks for having me.
Oh, thanks for joining us, Alyssa. I just want to wish you all the success in the world. I very much look forward to seeing what you can do in the Senate, especially a democratically controlled Senate in a nation that still functions as a democracy. From your lips to God's ears. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You Bye. Bye-bye. So that was Alyssa Slotkin reminding us that we have to have a plan. Outrage isn't enough. We have to work. We have to find a way to tie our human rights issues to our economic issues, to speak in a way people can hear and turn out the vote, which includes voter registration, to get even more people involved in our democracy. We are living through a moment of great political instability, but we still have the chance to choose leaders who can right this ship, and we have to work our tails off to get them elected. I want to thank Alyssa for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now make a plan and follow through. Until next week, peachy out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.